This morning we mark the beginning of Holy Week, which means that roughly this time of year, two millennia ago, Jesus entered Jerusalem, looking past the utter hatred for the shame of his betrayal and his suffering and his death and burial, and instead looking ahead to the joy set before him in resurrection and ascension in salvation for his people. So this morning we'll look at the events leading into that last week of Jesus' pre-glorified ministry. And while we do, young Christians, while we read and discuss these things, here's my question for you. How does a king put your fears to rest? How does Jesus take away the things that worry and scare you so they can't bother us anymore? This is the good news of Jesus for whom the church waited in ages past. And now for whose return, the church along with the entire creation, wait with groans of longing. John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave him a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, This is... He said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. The poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Lord Jesus, you are the resurrection and the life. And so it is unthinkable to us that you would die, especially that you would die for us. Most of the time, it's not just that we can't understand it, it's that we don't like it. What a strange turn that we should be dissatisfied with you. 
And yet for all of our failings, all of our shortcomings, all of our corruption and hostility toward you, you have decided to satisfy yourself in us by your saving power. Lord Jesus, we find comfort knowing that even though they were there for these things, your first disciples were perplexed by all that they saw. So now we confess to you some of our own confusion, some of our own dissatisfaction. We ask this morning that you would help us to understand, and more important than understanding, we ask that you would satisfy us in your gospel this morning with the belief and the rest that you grant by your Spirit to your people. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, our passage this morning begins with an awkward dinner party, and then it ends with a parade. Their venues are completely opposite. One happens in a home, confined to a private residence for a few to see, and the other is out in the streets. But both are moments of celebration, celebrations that slowly dissolve into bickering every time. There are a lot of dissatisfied people, and at every turn through our passage, someone is grumbling or arguing or plotting. But don't get lost in that. Don't get lost in the argument at dinner over perfume. Judas isn't concerned for the poor. Don't get lost in Jesus' statement. He's not disinterested. Jesus is about to accomplish the righting of all of our wrongs. Our wrong hearts with all of their wrong loves and their wrong motives. Our wrong lives with all of our shallow thoughts and evil actions and hollow virtue. Jesus isn't disinterested in poverty. Fear not, he is about to rescue the entire creation out of the poverty of the curse. Now one more oddity in these scenes. One more thing they have in common, the dinner party and the parade. Lazarus is everywhere. Did you hear his name over and over and over again? Did it start to bother you the way it bothered me that he was getting so much press in our story? He's more clearly in view than Mary or Martha or Judas or the crowds and the Pharisees. He's second only to Jesus and his prominence through the entire passage to the point that it's almost disturbing how often he comes up. This is supposed to be a story about Jesus' triumphal entry. This is supposed to be a story about his dinner party, his feast, a banquet thrown in his honor. Every time we turn around, we keep hearing about Lazarus. Now, if you... If you break down the section of John's, this section of John's gospel, you end up with three episodes. You have the dinner in verses 1 to 8. You get the crowds looking for Jesus in verses 9 to 11. And then you have what you'd expect, the triumphal entry in verses 12 through 19. And in every one of these, Lazarus all but steals the show. Verses 1 and 2 tell us that the dinner was given for Jesus because he had raised Lazarus. Verse 9 tells us that the crowd was searching for Jesus, but they were also searching for Lazarus. 
And verses 18 and 19 tell us that the Pharisees are upset by all the buzz surrounding Jesus because of what he's done for Lazarus. It's just a lot of Lazarus for me when I expect Jesus to have unrivaled focus. And no matter how uncomfortable his presence is for me as a reader, it had to be weirder for those original witnesses. It had to be stranger for them that he kept showing up. I mean, a chapter ago, people were hesitant to go into this guy's tomb because they knew it would be filled with the stench of his corpse. And now there he is, sitting down at the table in a room filled and overrun with perfume. There he is, kind of awkwardly and inconveniently at every scene, this sort of weird, resurrected party guest. And when the chief priests are all upset by this, when they're overcome with their own dissatisfaction, they decide they should find a way to kill Lazarus. And then, because of Lazarus, when the Pharisees are upset, they decide they should kill Jesus. Now, I know that sin is always foolish, but it just seems to me like the Pharisees bend over backwards to nurture their stupidity. I mean, they're standing around at this procession, and they decide they have to kill Jesus. We don't have any records of it, but I can't help but imagine that there was at least one reluctant Pharisee questioning the strategy. There was one guy, when they said, we've got to kill him, that said, are we talking about him? The guy on the cult that everybody seems to love? Yeah, him. Are you sure? Yeah, he's got to go. Why? It just seems like if we're picking people to kill for personal gain, the guy that heals the blind and exercises demons should be lower on our list. I mean, I don't want to be a bandwagoner, but people are saying this guy silences a storm with a word. And last week he raised that guy from the dead with a shout. And I'm just thinking maybe we ought to reconsider our list of enemies. I mean, on his pro column, I have things like he heals people, he raises the dead, he feeds crowds miraculously. And on the con column, all I can come up with is that he makes friends faster than we do. Wanting to kill the guy who silences death seems like bad form. But I guess the heart wants what the heart wants, right? You and I know way better than to try and dispose of Jesus with clubs and nails and crosses. So you and I take the high road. We find ways to dismiss or to reinvent him. Now, Sometimes that's simple. Sometimes that just involves our carefully edited versions of Jesus. Making him out the way we want to. And then sometimes it's a little more sophisticated. Sometimes it means that we have to reinterpret all that he is and all that he's done in order to make him more appealing to ourselves or others, to make him a little less offensive, maybe a little more appropriate. This is the third year that our oldest has been in preschool, and he loves it. But like any school... Some days are just better than others. And Pony Picture Day is one of those days. 
every year it comes around in the spring. Every year is Pony Picture Day. And this year Walker dressed himself up in his cowboy hat and his jeans and his belt buckle bigger than his fist. And it's always cute. But it's always the same. He always gets excited for it. They throw out some bleached hay down on the playground. And they set up a fake cactus. And the school brings in a Shetland pony and a handler. And I assume they feed the pony NyQuil because he just sits there motionless. <laughs> and every kid takes his turn putting on the chaps and the little cheesy vest. And they climb up the stepladder and on to the miniature saddle. And voila, tiny, clueless cowboys. And they snap a picture and move them on. Run them through like an assembly line. And it's all very cute. But it's all contrived. It's all very, very fake. I have to confess, I have, I have always disliked Palm Sunday. I've always been dissatisfied in our celebration of it. I've always been dissatisfied hearing it, uh, hearing it preached, hearing the story told. Because the story always feels to me like Pony Picture Day. It feels like a big charade. The borrowed cult and all the humility don't feel like the triumphant processional of a king to me. They feel like his teachers put this on so they could send some pictures to Mary and Joseph for the fridge. I'm dissatisfied because this isn't the entrance I want from my king. I'm dissatisfied because in years past I have not seen the big deal. I have not understood the cause for rejoicing. I'm dissatisfied because I want the kind of military processional a king receives after conquest. I want Jesus to ride in on a stallion or in a chariot saying, Fear not, I have already destroyed all of your enemies. And that's not the kind of procession I get. That's not the event that was celebrated. That's not the event we remember and preach and hang hopes on on this Sunday. Instead, I get Jesus riding in, celebrated and praised with less fanfare. Not on his way back into the capital after fighting wars abroad. I have him entering the city to fight at home. And his victory speech will not be, I kicked down their front lines and I dispensed all the fury of our military forces. Because that is not the way his conquest ran. The violence of his conquest isn't dealt out in some magnificent and noble way on everything out there. The fury of Jesus' conquest is the wrath that he absorbs on a cross in my place. And that is not the conquest I want. I want too much force. And sometimes we want too little. But I am rarely satisfied with the force and the fury of the conquest that Jesus waged and accomplished Several weeks ago, a prominent pastor with a large following conducted a series of interviews about a new book he's written. 
One of the fewer, one of the interviewers started out with questions about the problem of evil. And so the pastor thought he was being profound and maybe even thought he was being very helpful. And his answer started out like this. Listen, I start with the assumption that every time we shed a tear, God sheds a tear too. I think he wants too little force. Because in the end, that's all the answer he offered. And it's great to think that God feels badly for us, but I want to know that he's going to do something about it. I want to know he's going to do something to get me out of my mess. Anyone can send a sympathy card. Anyone can cry at Lazarus' graveside. But if you're going to be a savior, you're going to have to be able to fix it. Tell me or show me that you can do more for Lazarus than shed tears for him. Tell me and show me that you can do more for me, more for my tombs, than just cry. Fear not. Jesus came to do away with death, and not just all the difficult things in life that feel like death, but actual Physical and spiritual, literal, grave-filling, body-corrupting, soul-ripping death. And every smaller and lesser form that fall out from it. Jesus really did come to put those things away, not just to feel badly for us that these things are happening. And so the borrowed colt, and the style of the fanfare aren't the only reasons that Jesus' triumphal, em- triumphal entry has disappointed me over the years. It's always bothered me, and it's usually preached like this, that the whole town comes out to shower him with praise a week before they chant in unison, crucify him. And so on the one hand, I'm dissatisfied with the fickle cheers and the devotion of Jerusalem. And on the other hand, I'm very troubled at how familiar all of this sounds. How easy it is for me to come up with my own stories of praise quickly followed by rejection. Wanting all that Jesus has for me in one instant, followed quickly by wanting anything but what he has for me. Well, you'll be glad to hear my dissatisfaction with this story recently turned a corner. Not that you were losing sleep over it. She'll be glad to hear. That I realized I had misunderstood this aspect of the report. This isn't all of Jerusalem coming out in mass. This isn't the city of Jerusalem coming to welcome Jesus shortly before they call for his execution. John goes out of his way in verses 9 and 12 and 17, to tell me that this isn't all of Jerusalem. I'm just not a very good listener. I miss it over and over, year after year. But John makes a point to tell us that this isn't all of Jerusalem. Instead, this is the crowd that was searching for him in Bethany. And the crowd welcoming him into Jerusalem with shouts and palm branches is the same crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus out of that tomb. And suddenly, Lazarus' oddly 
obvious presence in John's account makes sense. He's not just a footnote in the story. He's not just an awkward bystander that gets in the way of all the scenes. This isn't just some cross-section of Jewish hordes. These are Jesus' devoted followers. And they were with him at Lazarus' tomb. They have seen him silence death with a shout. They have celebrated with him. They heard about the feast that was thrown in his honor. They've looked for him. They found him. They were rejoicing over him. And now they're welcoming him. These are his devoted followers. It doesn't mean that their devotion is perfect. It doesn't mean that it's unwavering. It doesn't even mean that they won't desert him at the end of the week at his trial, just like the rest of the disciples. But it does mean that these people aren't cheering for their own concept of who Jesus should be. This isn't some misguided fan base that's believed the wrong propaganda. These are true worshipers. They love Jesus. And they, unlike me, they are not disappointed in his humility. Because they've already started to see what kind of king he is to be for their salvation. The kind of king that in humility and holy disdain for our sin bleeds and dies in our place on a Roman cross. The kind of king that silences our fears by silencing all of our accusers. The kind of king who puts away the penalty and guilt for your sin by winning the Father's forgiveness that you never could have gotten on your own. The kind of king that destroys the power of your sin by continually, sometimes frustratingly, showing you the weak imitation God that it is. And the kind of king that calls you away from your sin over and over because you need him to call you over and over away from your sin not just wishfully, not just tearfully, but powerfully call you away from your sin to serve the living God with joy. So what would it look like for us to celebrate Palm Sunday like that? What would it look like for us to receive our King, to welcome Him in with real joy, Not thinking it's a charade, not treating it like pony picture day, but really celebrating that our king for whom we have waited has come. Instead of our coats, we should spread our sin in front of him, out and exposed to be trampled under his feet because that's what he does with it. Not fearful. Not afraid for what others will think when they see it lying there on the ground. Not, thinking what, not fearful thinking what Jesus will say to us afterwards. Joyful and hopeful, knowing that he tramples it underfoot. Saying along with the crowd, Hosanna, the king has come. What would it look like for him to come in where he's welcome? 
And what would it look like for him to come in where we refuse to welcome him? Where we grumble at his presence? Where we tell him that sin has to stay. You can have all the others, but this one stays. When Jesus comes in, he's not looking for that kind of hospitality. He doesn't ask your permission. He doesn't ask where things are in your home and what he can use and what he can't. When Jesus comes in, he's king. And that makes us uneasy, but when he comes through the door, he says, fear not. I have come to put all of these things away and put all of these things right. And some of it's going to hurt, but it's going to be good. Now, some of you may be with us for the first time, or maybe you've been with us for a while. But you don't know what to do with a Jesus like this. You don't know what to do with a Jesus who comes in with gentleness and humility and promises at the same time to be ruthless with any of his rivals for your affection. For some of you, that might be very unsettling. Maybe it's offensive or disturbing. But for some of you, all of this might start to sound strangely appealing. Like maybe Jesus is the kind of Savior worth having. If you want help sorting out what to do with him, what to think about him, what to believe about him. Or if you don't want help, but you're a little bothered and you have questions, come and find me after the service. I'd be glad to answer any questions you have. We can find time for coffee or lunch later this week and discuss them at length. But Jesus did come in humility. And Jesus did come to be ruthless. And he came in humility and he received a humble welcome. But there is another triumphal entry on the horizon. And this time, we won't struggle whether or not we're satisfied with it. This time he won't come in on a borrowed mule... When he comes again, he won't come with small, with small bands of devoted followers and small fanfare. He will come with angelic trumpets. He will come with all of his saints, resurrected and gathered. And people won't lay down coats and palm fronds. When he comes back, he will undo the curse with a shout. And he will pave the way by remaking all of creation. Nobody will grumble or plot to overthrow him. There will be nothing but the stark contrast between the sad acknowledgement of the judged and the endless, uncontainable praise of the redeemed. Now, I'm disappointed only when I think of Jesus in his humility. But that's because I'm forgetful. In his humiliation, he bought our exaltation. By living in our cursed world, by taking the pains of our curse and death, Jesus has bought the right to give you all of his joy, all of his privileges, all of his standing, all of the Father's delight in him 
is now yours as sons and daughters. All of his endless inheritance is yours because he bought them with this kind of humility. And his resurrection, his triumph over death, his walking out of the tomb with no one else's help, his resurrection will be yours when he calls you out of yours, when he raises you out of your tomb at the end of time and gathers you once again for his final triumphal entry. At the cross, he won all of these riches. And now we look forward in hope to the day that he comes back to spend all of them on our final redemption, and his redemption for all of creation. Fear not. Your king has already entered in humility, and now we wait with expectation and joy for the next triumphal entry when he comes to put all things right. Amen. Lord Jesus, you have satisfied the Father's wrath for our sin. You have satisfied your holy longing by becoming our Redeemer and gathering us for your worship to enjoy your salvation and to be remade. And so now we ask that you would satisfy us in yourself, satisfy our restlessness, and satisfy our consciences. And satisfy all of our longing for a strong and at the same time humble and compassionate, victorious Savior King. Give us real joy in celebrating your triumphant reception in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And fill us with joyful expectation as we wait for your triumphal entry to put creation right. Work in your grace for our benefit and nourishment at this table we ask again here that you would satisfy us with the assurance of our fellowship, the fellowship that you have given us with the Father by your cross and resurrection, the fellowship that you seal for us with your Spirit. We ask all of these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And now, in the words of Christians who have gone before us, let us love one another, Christians, and with one mouth let us confess what it is that we believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.